Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Um, all right, tonight we are doing parents. We're doing a series on relationships. Next week is going to be the dreadful dating talk. Um, so we'll see what happens. But this week is parents. And I'm going to read just one passage from Ephesians. You have it there. And if we, you know, even if you have a great relationship with your parents, there's no such thing as an uncomplicated relationship with your parents. And I know in this room there is a wide spectrum of uh, parental relationships. Um, there's really, really bad ones, really, really unhealthy ones in this room uh, that are abusive or abandoned um, or in which there's a lot of tension. Uh, there are even good parents in this room, and there are those of you who have really overbearing parents and you feel like you're supposed to say they're good parents, but you feel like they're not. You're like, they care so much, I have to call them good parents. Um, there are harsh parents, and this is the thing is, some of your, and maybe even a lot of your criticism of your parents is valid, uh, but the hard thing is, is that some of your criticism of your parents is way off base, and it's hard to know which is. Um, and the reason our relationship with our parents are complicated is because parents, speaking as one, uh, who's, and parents are terrible parents, by and large. But what further complicates the relationship is every child that's ever been a child is a brat. And so when you have terrible parents and brats, that makes for a complicated relationship. So we're going to see if there's something we can learn from Scripture to maybe begin to move toward a little bit of health uh, in it. So these are a couple of verses from Ephesians. He quotes the Ten Commandments, uh, the Fifth Commandment in here. Uh, Paul says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Quotes the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it will go well with you and you would live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words from Paul. And as we consider from several places in Scripture what you have to say about how we relate to our parents, um, we need the humility to hear. We need the tenderness of heart for the seeds to go deep. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us. And I pray that you would give us the courage to believe the gospel and to begin to act on it. Uh, the truth that you have loved us in a way we can't imagine. So be with us now. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, so... Paul quotes the Ten Commandments here, and the fifth commandment is honor your father and mother. The Ten Commandments, what they are intended to be, is God actually lays down, here are ten timeless principles that form the foundation of a flourishing society and a flourishing humanity. So they are intended to be, this. if you hold to these ten things as a people group, this is God's design for how humanity would flourish. So what that means is, Honor your father and mother is supposed to be a timeless principle, regardless of the type of parent we have, that sits at the foundation of human flourishing. So we have to work out what that means. And the first thing you need to know, we'll do a little bit of theology here at the beginning, is we have to remember God gives the command 
honor your father and mother. And it's significant that God gives that command because the first thing that you have to remember is there's a hierarchy. And this is what I mean. If you have ever babysat for us, um, you might have heard us say to our children, Miss Kate is in charge now. We are actually giving our child, our children directives for how to live. And what that means is it means that Miss Kate gets her authority from us. It's a derivative authority. So we have authority and we appoint a steward, someone who's not us, that we have said, we give her charge now, we want you to honor her. And so when you disobey her, you also disobey us. When God gives us the command, honor your father and mother, the first thing we're supposed to do is to remember that's a command from God. That the authority that our parents have is actually from God. To dishonor our parents is to dishonor God, and to honor our parents is to honor God. Now, next thing is, so the parental authority is derivative. That's really important. But the secondly is, what does that word honor mean? Right? It sits at the foundation of everything. And actually, in Leviticus 19, there's another word uh, that Moses uses. says, revere your parents. And what's interesting is the two words used to describe how we relate to our parents in the Old Testament, honor and revere, they are only ever used of one other relationship in Scripture. And it's our relationship with God. We revere and we honor Him. And the word, the Hebrew word for honor here is this word pronounced kavod or kavod. And it's actually the verb form of the word glory. It's the word that's used to describe any time God's glory is described in Scripture. It's a strong word. It means give great weight to. It's only ever used of God. It's a word used when God manifests Himself in really powerful ways at Sinai and a column of fire. Those kind of things are described as the glory of God. Same word. Now, what does it mean then? Right? Because if, if honor your father and mother is supposed to be a timeless principle, that means it's not a contingent principle. It doesn't mean honor them sometimes, honor them during these set of circumstances. This is intended to be one of the ten fundamental timeless principles. So what that means is, first of all, it doesn't mean always agree with them. Because there are bad parents that you shouldn't agree with at times. Right? It doesn't mean always trust them. Sometimes parents are not trustworthy. Now, Ephesians 6 says, actually, children, obey your parents in the Lord. And what Paul is doing is is he's taking the broader principle of honoring your father or mother and he's applying it situationally to children in the home. Right? He's applying it to a specific situation, the time when we're developmentally children in the home. But the command to honor your parents stands for all time, all throughout our lives. And what it means is it means this. It means to respect them. Because you can, dis- you can respect people that you disagree with. But what it means is when you disagree with your parents, you give an incredible and actually the most effort possible to empathize. To understand why they said what they said. To understand why they feel what they feel. To understand why they think the way they think. You always seek... This is how you respect someone you disagree with. You seek to understand where they're coming from in such a way that you can articulate what they're thinking and feeling and they say, yes, you've represented me accurately. 
once we stop caricaturing someone we disagree with and can actually explain their point of view in a way that doesn't offend them, we've entered into actually like healthy, mature disagreement. But it means that we respect them, that we seek to understand where they're coming from. It means this. It means that we give great weight to their opinions, not because they've earned the right, but simply because they're our parents. It means that we can't be dismissive of them. Right? You can dismiss when a barista, we love baristas in RUF, but when a barista has an opinion about who you should date or what you should major in, you can dismiss their opinion about that. That's not their role in your life. But the role of a parent, because they're your parent, dismissing their opinion should be done, it's not that it's impossible, it should be done with great trepidation and great humility. And we should never dismiss their person or their office, even if we disagree with their opinion. It means that we don't condescend or gossip about our parents. You can't respect anybody that you condescend or gossip about. And the reality is, we think, some of us don't feel free to say this, but we all feel this, that our parents are doofuses. Right? But this is the thing. We, we think there's so many things our parents don't get. And whether or not you feel that way about your parents, here's the thing that's true. They wiped your fanny for the first two years of your life. And they wiped your vomit off the walls. And we have a, and the kind of sleepness, sleeplessness they endured for the first six months of your life. When you share with a parent about how tough your all-nighter was, we are trying as hard as we can to be like, that sounds hard. Now do it every night for six months. And that's one child. Right? So when we have lots of opinions about how our parents should think and how they should do things and how they're wrong, here's the simple reality. At this point, as far as I know for everybody in this room, you've only ever been a child. Here's the thing about your parent. Your parent has been a child. They actually have experienced your life to some degree. Granted, at a different time, but they've experienced what it feels like to be a child. And they've experienced being a parent. So on the life experience scale, they're killing us, okay? There needs to be some humility with the way we go about disagreeing with them. And we can be so condescending, can't we, to the people who have given up so much for us. Regardless of what they think, we can't condescend. Regardless of the way we think differently, we can't condescend. It means that we dignify them and we give them access to our lives. It is... It is absolutely impossible. This is not like, it's really hard and if you apply yourself, you can do it. It's impossible for you to understand the kind of ownership they feel that they have in you. One day when you have kids, Lord willing, if you have kids, you'll be able to understand it. It's impossible. I mean that word literally. You cannot understand the way your parents feel about you. You cannot understand the sense of ownership they feel in you. Do they misuse their sense of ownership in us? Yes, absolutely. You cannot understand the way they feel towards you. And that means that we dignify them and give access to our lives. It means that we... Here's what it means. It means we call them. I'm bad at this too. It means we call them back. It means we answer their phone call. It means we text them. It means that we don't stonewall them. It means that we let them in. It means that you love them. It means that you tell them about your life. 
You tell them about your heart and you listen to what they have to say about it. It doesn't mean you agree. But it means you grant them the dignity due to their office. And the command is not fix your parents. Don't we want to? But that's not what God calls us to do. And here's the thing that you need to know. Every way that you feel about your parents now, your children are going to feel the exact same way about you. And the more you're convinced that, no, 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 they're never going to feel this way about me, the worse it's going to be. The more you're convinced that, no, I'll be the right kind of parent, that actually makes the situation worse. Because it means you won't be able to learn for your children as well. What God wants you to know is that when you interact with your parents, apart from your opinions about what they have to say, apart from that, that doesn't even matter, children are first to consider, this is someone to whom God has said, give great respect to them. God used a word about two people that He only reserves for Himself. He says, give kavod. Not to the institution of parents, but to your mom and to your dad. And that's hard. Because parents are not always the best parents. And they can even betray their calling as parents. If we go back to our babysitter metaphor, if a babysitter asks our child or encourages our child to do something in opposition to or neglectful to our values, then our child actually out of obedience to the higher authority, out of obedience to us, is actually right to disagree. So if this, you know... This Kate, this um, fictional Kate, <laughs> is like, hey, don't worry about bedtime. Let's drink Red Bull and let's watch all the Transformers movies, right? <laughs> this never happened, okay? There's nobody y'all know. Um, I'm just kidding, that really didn't happen, but it's a great babysitter. In that situation, my children are actually right to say, Miss Kate that doesn't feel right or in the spirit or the values of our household. Because our dad says Transformers is terrible art. (laughs) And like the technical expertise and the thematic profundity of Fight Club would be something he would prefer us to watch. Right? (laughs) She betrayed our sense of aesthetics, which is important to us. It's a moral value to us, right? And as silly as it sounds like, right, parents can betray the sense of how things God intended things to be. And, and you know what? There are a few occasions I know of at least where, where parents have actively led their children, uh, encouraged their children away from the love of God. We don't want you to trust in Jesus or to follow Jesus. But that's usually not the way parents betray their calling. It's rarely that black and white. Some of our parents in this room, our parents actually taught us the gospel. Right? They said, God made you, He loves you, we sinned against Him, but Jesus paid for your sins, which means you're completely known, you're completely loved. And they, they actually responsibly raised us in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, but underneath those words and in the culture of the home, there was an unspoken, or maybe even a spoken, but also. But also, you have to perform to earn our love. But also, you have to perform to have any sense of self in school and sports, socially. You need to lose weight. You need to achieve at a higher level. There's a but also. And in so doing, when our parents added that but also, even though they raised us as Christians, they betrayed their calling. Some parents, instead of raising us up, when, when Paul says, calls us, 
father, do not provoke your children in the Lord, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It means to raise children up so they can be mature, healthy, responsible adults. And some of our parents have said, no, I'm going to keep you down. I need you to remain a child so that I can have meaning. And they use us for their own meaning. So they betray their calling in that way. Some parents have said, God doesn't know what He's talking about on sexuality, so go to college and experiment and do whatever. And they've betrayed God's calling. Some parents have abdicated their role. I'm out. Do what you want. Some parents have said, I don't want to be your parent. I want to be your friend. Some parents have verbally, emotionally, and even physically usurped their authority and abused their children. What do we do with that? What do we do with the fact that all of our parents have failed? Michael Chabon, writer, says, says this. This is what a father is. A father is a man who fails every day. How do we honor, respect, and dignify our failed parents? And by the way, if you're a parent one day, I can 100% guarantee you, you are going to be a failed parent. And actually, your failure will hurt your child more if you refuse to acknowledge that. If you can enter into the humility of the life of a failed parent and actually ask your child for forgiveness, there's hope. But if you're unwilling to acknowledge that you too are a failed parent in your parenting relationship, more damage is done and not less. Now, what do we do with that? First, I want to understand why that, why it's so hard. Why has this relationship produced so much angst and anxiety? And the reason why is this is because there's no other human relationship that will shape you as much as your parents' relationship. Even if you don't like them and don't talk to them, it still shapes you more than any other relationship. Whether you like them, whether you're close to them or not, our culture has actually rightly realized and said, you know, if you actually want to understand yourself, the main thing you've got to understand is your relationship with your parents. That's what we do when we don't understand ourselves anymore. You go to a therapist, you go to a psychologist, and you begin to understand your relationship with your parents because it's so formative. It is what has made you. God has given parents the responsibility to craft us into whole, to whole, into wise, into healthy, secure, integrated, loving, selfless, and serving people who are sure of the love of God and grace in the grace of Jesus. That's what they were called to do. And they didn't start shaping us when we reach some level of cognitive ability and they could instruct us, they could just download information. That's not when parents started shaping us. They've been shaping us in a very deep way since we were embryos. And science actually agrees with the Bible on this. The Bible's been saying it a lot longer than science. Science is kind of in this habit of always confirming what Scripture says. That, yeah, you were being shaped by your parents in your embryonic state. You were being shaped by their voices then. Did you know that? among other things, let alone things like DNA. The kind of access and influence and intimacy and trust between a fetus and her parents, between a newborn and parents, between an infant and parents, between a toddler, a child, even a teen and a parent, it's unrivaled in human relationships. There's no comparison. The closest friendship, the closest romance, the most intimate marriage will never touch the kind of influence your parents have had in shaping you. Think about simply this experience, what this means. When you were a newborn, infant, toddler, young child, maybe even during your teenage years, you did something, and every child has instinctively done this with their parent. You cried to your parent. And the operative word here is to. Not with them. We all still cry with people. 
you actually instinctively cried to them. What does that mean? That means instinctively you bore your heart to them when you were sad. And you didn't think about how you came across. You didn't carefully manicure your image or how they would perceive you. You were actually, a child is unabashed in his tears. Things went wrong and a child cries, lays his or her heart wide open, as bare as someone possibly could. You bore your soul to your parents. And not only that, the reason we actually cry to our parents, like we cry with friends, but the reason we actually cry to our parents is because we want them to be the hero to make everything right. That's why you cry to someone. And not only did we want them to be the hero to make it right, the reason we instinctively cried to them is we expected them to be the hero to make everything right. And a lot of our parents wanted to do that for us and couldn't. None of them could. Do you cry to anyone now? No. What else did you do with your parents? You presented your life to your parents all the time. You presented your creations, your work, your life, your victories to them. Not for approval. I've talked about this before. Not for approval. Not to earn their love, but for sheer delight. A kid, a three-year-old has never drawn a picture and showed it to his parents, hoping his parents would love him. They just drew a picture and showed it to her parents because that's a happy thing. Mom look and dad look are some of the purest words. You, you showed your parents your crappy Lego creations and your crappy drawings. And you showed it to them without shame. And they were crappy, by the way. <laughs> and you felt no shame. And they loved it. And their delight in you was not just your chief joy in life, it was your only joy in life. It was everything. We expected our parents to be heroes, to be gods, people who loved and delighted us unconditionally. And we didn't just want, but we actually expected them to be able to fix every sad thing that came into our lives. I don't know if you all experienced this, but... I remember throughout childhood little having the my dad can beat up your dad conversation or debate. Why do we do that? It's because the perceived strength of your dad is everything. It's what holds the universe together for a child. Now here's what all of that means. The fact that as children we instinctively relate to our parents that way. It means that parents have more power to disappoint than anyone else in our lives. And their failure devastates us more than anyone's. When the person that you cried to can't make it better, which none of them can, or even worse, doesn't try to make it better, the repercussions of that disappointment and hurt are lifelong and deep. We wanted them to make all the sad things in life go away, and we expected them to. When they fail, and when they've lied, and when they've abandoned, and when they've fallen short, and when they've overparented, our hurt and our rage and our devastation is incalculable. This is why we stopped crying to people. Notice you don't cry to anyone anymore. We ask for people to cry with, we don't cry to. 
It's actually because we experience disappointment with the people we used to cry to. And so what we did is when we cried to our parents and we cried to our parents and we cried to our parents and they couldn't fix what needed fixing in us or in the world or in them, whatever it is, we began to build walls. We're like, this world's no longer safe. Dad, Mom, you're supposed to make it safe. Now it's no longer safe. So we built walls and we began to try to control things in our life and we began to guard against hope. We actually didn't want to hope anymore. So we began to harden our hearts. That's how you avoid hoping. And we began to live in bitterness. And that childlike hope and longing to be fully known and fully loved and have all the sad things come untrue, we started to hate and hide that feeling and distract ourselves from feeling it because our parents couldn't fix the world for us. And you need to know what kind of people parents are. So imagine, this is who a parent is. If you want to get a little picture into the window in the interior life of a parent. You know how today, this week, this month, this season of your life, you're wrestling, you're wrestling with your goals, you're wrestling with who you're becoming, you're wrestling with shame and guilt, you're frustrated, you're trying to prove yourself, you're spiteful, you're wrestling with relationships, you're depressed, and a parent is you, and then God says, here's a newborn, in the midst of all of that, raise this person. There's not this like magical threshold you get over that God's like, they got it figured out, hey, here's a newborn. You, the way you are now, with a newborn, that's what a parent is. And for a parent, there's no relationship in which you can experience more shame than your, parent, than your relationship with your child. Because on top of being just like us, parents are you, plus given the responsibility where someone who is completely beautiful, 100% vulnerable, needs you 24-7, they're naked and they're needy, and they have no accusation against you. All they do is look at you with big eyes and say, I need you to love me and make me safe. And you'll fail them. Imagine what that would do to you. Someone needed you to be their hero and you couldn't. And not just because you lacked the ability, you actually lacked the character. You couldn't do it. I can't be the hero my children need me to be because I'm selfish. I don't even want to be selfish. And I'm fighting against it, but I am. And so I haven't been the hero they need. And you will not be the hero your children need. And some parents have run away from their parenting because of the deep shame about their parenting. And some parents overparent because of their deep shame and their deep guilt about the parenting. But the reason that we hate our parents is because they couldn't be God for us. And until we realize that they never could be, we can't move toward healing in that relationship. So what do we do with the failing parent? We're lost and wounded in ways that are far deeper. It's already hard. It's hard enough to love and forgive a peer, right? A friend. It's a, now we're talking about parents. You can only move into health and relationship with your parent if you see God behind them. Because how does a child honor, obey, even respectfully and humbly disagree or fight with a bad babysitter? She sees her parents standing behind the babysitter. For you to begin to move in a healthy and honoring way toward your parents, there has to be a deeper love for you to draw from. A love that's deeper than even the best parents can give us. 
Jesus makes this incredible comment in Luke 14. He says something that, that people have kind of been mystified about for a while. He says this, Anyone who comes to me and doesn't hate his mother and his father, wife and children, brothers and sisters, hate even his own life, he can, then he cannot be my disciple. Now what is Jesus saying? He's saying this, You don't get the gospel if you don't understand the love with which God intended you to experience from Him will be of such an order, of such a magnitude, that all the other closest loves in your life will look like hate when they're compared to it. He's actually not calling us to hate. He's actually equipping us to love by saying the love with which God intends to fill you up will be so filling and give you such a fullness and sweetness and such a joy and such a security will remove shame and guilt, will become so central that these other relationships with parents, even your relationship with yourself, will radically pale in comparison. The only way that you will ever be able to love and honor your parents, even the hard, bad ones, is if you are filled up with a bigger, better love. And if that feels next to impossible, like there couldn't be a love big enough to enable me to love my parents because you don't know my parents, then you don't know the gospel. Because the one thing I want you all to see in this series, the whole series on relationships, is that underneath everything we do, I don't mean the religious stuff we do, I mean everything we do. Every decision, micro decision, macro decision that you make, and everything we feel in this life, underneath all of it is a fundamental need to be known and to be loved. And the reason that our lives get so complicated and so warped is because we don't believe it's possible to be truly known and completely unconditionally loved. So what we did to deal with the fact that we don't think that's possible is the thing we want more than anything else, is we created religion to deal with it. And everybody's religious. Whether or not you're religious, everybody's religious. Because religion means this, in this order too. You work to be accepted or valued. You labor, labor, labor. You work, 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 whether it's morally, right? Improving to be a better person. Religiously, right? Involved in religious rituals. Socially, trying to be a certain way so people will accept you. Physically, trying to look a certain way. Academically, professionally, labor, 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 work, work, hoping that at some point you're going to reach this threshold at which someone somewhere in the universe will call out a voice that has authority, will pronounce a verdict over you. Well done. You are the right sort of person. You can rest now. You are treasured and approved. I'm proud of you. You're perfect. I'm forever and always proud to call you my child in whom I delight. Your religion, whether it's formal religion, trying to obey the law of God, or it's secular religion, it's school, popularity, influence, impact, wealth, whatever it is that you're working so hard to get, will never get you there. This is an article from the New York Times uh, last year by a guy named Tony Schwartz about the enduring seeking of value. He says, starts the article this way, Why does Michael Phelps keep returning to a brutal training regimen in the pool long after he's achieved every imaginable accolade as a swimmer? 
Why do men who have earned hundreds of millions of dollars, even billions, work relentlessly to earn even more, long after it could possibly make any material difference in their lives? Why does a substantial group of politicians with no remote chance of being elected president feel compelled to traverse the country, campaigning 18 hours a day for two years? As little as these varied people have in common, their shared core hunger is to feel valued. We each want desperately to matter, to feel a sense of worthiness. This is what he says at the end of the article. And this guy, he's an accomplished writer, all this kind of stuff, lots of wealth. He says, My search for the deepest sources of value is not over because the journey is lifelong, but one simple principle does seem increasingly evident. We do not derive greatest value by seeking to build a better case for ourselves. And isn't that what we're doing all the time? We are working to be loved and accepted. And this is what the gospel is. The gospel is that order reversed. God's love is the opposite of everything else in the world. Martin Luther labored and labored to, to, do, to be the most successful religious person ever, to love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and love his neighbors himself, hoping the one day that he will find the rest in the final verdict of God until one day he actually was reading Romans and he realized that the reason that we're enslaved and unhappy and insecure in this life is because we got the order wrong. We think you live, obey, work in order to be loved. And that's what Luther thought. And that's what every Stanford student thinks. And that's what insecure college pastors think. That you work, you obey, you live rightly, hoping that you will be loved. But when Luther read Romans and realized it said, by works no one will be justified. Tony Schwartz is just stealing Paul. You're justified by faith in Jesus through God's grace. In the gospel, God says, I love you. All the reasons you feel that you're not worthy of love, you know what the cross is? Jesus taking out our trash. It's Jesus taking all of those reasons that we feel and say we're not worthy of being loved. Take them away. Religion says, live well enough so that you can be loved. Jesus says, I love you. I've forgiven you. Now go live from that love. Romans 5, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. If you live to get love, you may be a nice person, but you will always be a selfish person. Even if you try to live as a Christian, you will be trying to obey God and you will be trying to love people selfishly because you're doing it to earn something for yourself some kind of verdict from God that you're a good enough Christian. So you don't love people for their sake and you actually don't love God for His sake. You're trying to love them for yourself. Your love is not real because it's ultimately a selfish pursuit and you'll always be anxious because you'll always be wondering if you've been good enough. But instead, if you live because you have the love of God because it's freely given, then you can actually truly love people. Love God, not to get something from Him, but actually because in Him you already have everything. Love people, not to be a performance standard of religion or of being a good person or feeling good about yourself, but because they're people. Because of the love of Jesus, you're actually full. 
and you can actually weep for your parents and then respect them. You know, if every time we got something wrong as a Christian, and we're terrible at being Christians, if every time we responded to when we, the moments when we get things wrong as a Christian, we just responded with, hey, you need to be better at that. You need to be better at honoring your parents. You know what would happen? Our behaviors might change a little bit externally. But our hearts would never be free and our hearts would never be full and in fact they will harden over time and we'll get more and more anxious over time. But if we actually want to live in a way that we can actually genuinely forgive and love and honor our parents, what you need and what I need is not, hey, do better at this. We need the gospel. Every time someone misbehaves in Paul's letters, you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't say behave. He says you need to remember the gospel. Because it's so good and it's so opposite to every other way we expect the world to be. Because of that, we actually forget it. But the unconditional and forgiving love of Jesus that is not based on your performance but on His grace... This is what Martin Luther said when he finally got it. He says this, Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn, to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. Whereas before, the justice of God filled me with hate, Now it became an inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul, this is Luther writing about Romans, became to me a gate to heaven. I broke through. He broke through trying to be a better person. Because he realized God's love is free. Have you broken through? It is the only thing that can end the cycle of frustration and bitterness with our parents and give us the humility to forgive, and not just to forgive, to love, and not just to love, but even honor our parents in the Lord. Let's pray.